Today on the Show Me Institute podcast, Dr. Susan Pendergrass is joined by Dr. Jeff Milo. Dr. Milo is a professor and department chair of political economics, law and economics, and health economics at the University of Missouri, and is a co-author of the new book, Campaign Finance and American Democracy, What the Public Really Thinks and Why It Matters. For more Show Me Institute podcast, visit showmeinstitute.org. Here's Dr. Susan Pendergrass. I'm really looking forward to this discussion today. We're going to talk about campaign finance reform and what can or can't be done and what is or isn't known. But before we get to that, I would just be really curious to get your take on the current, like the elephant in the room or the donkey in the room, the current state of affairs when it comes to um, people's faith in our electoral system. Well, that's, you know, uh, it, it is a big question. There's a lot of concern about it. And I, I, I would say a couple of things. First of all, when it comes to trust and confidence in, in American political institutions or trust and confidence in government, um, it's often taken for granted that that is a good thing and a desirable goal. And uh, probably slightly different whether we're talking about trust and confidence in the integrity of institutions versus trust and confidence in government to do the right thing, which is what's sure. often measured in surveys. Um, you know, I think it's a good thing if government actors do things to make them trustworthy, uh, but it's not obvious that, uh, you know, blind trust in, in government doing the right thing is, is, uh, is a desirable goal and that you know, some cynicism and skepticism is very healthy and a check on, on government abuse. So that would be one comment as often people take it for granted that trust in government is desirable and should be, should be increased through some external lever. Um, and then the other is that every political reform, whether it's term limits, voter ID, uh, same day registration, campaign finance reform, you name it, is sold as it's going to improve the integrity of democracy, increase trust in government, and and that you know that that's been declining, and uh, and so what one of the things we do in the book, and and what I've done in my research more generally, is to take those claims and test them using data. Are are they really true? And and one thing is, trust in government isn't declining over the last twenty odd years. To, to the extent there was a decline in trust in government, it's more from 1950s to 1980s maybe. Mm -hmm. um, and, and more recently, it's, it's pretty flat. You can find ups and downs, but, um, uh, and, and just the last thing on trust in government is it's, uh, it's also very much for the general public perceived through a partisan lens. So Absolutely. Republicans don't trust Democrats and Democrats don't trust Republicans. And, and that very much shapes people's um, um, opinions about government and the integrity of democracy. And that looms large in the discussion of campaign finance as well. Sure. So you said the, the book, just so I um, give you full plug value of that, which is Campaign Finance and American Democracy, What the Public Really Thinks and Why It Matters. And I am a huge supporter, embracer of evidence-based policy. And that has, it, I study education policy. But in my career, that has put me at odds with most of the general public on a couple of big issues. Number one being universal pre-K. People are just like, it must work. It has to work. 
making sure every three-year-old is in pre-K has to be a good idea. And most, quite often taxpayers are willing to pay for it because it must work. And unfortunately, there's no evidence that it does anything to reduce achievement gaps, but people just cannot let it go. That I would say in uh, reducing class sizes, it's like, there's just no evidence for it. I, I, I sound mean, but there's just no evidence for it. So similarly, we all know that there's, you know, cronyism and, and pay to play and the idea of uh, people running for office, taking big campaign donations just doesn't sit well with the general public, right? So it must be true that we need to fix that and to reform it, right? Yes? Uh, well, that, that's a claim. <laughs> that's a claim. claim. So, so refute that claim for me. Well, um, the, the first thing is, you know, I, I, with the caveat that I don't think it's unhealthy that Americans are very skeptical about government and politicians, but, mm -hmm. but there is a lot of skepticism and uh, a lot of cynicism about politics and politicians to the extent that one of the things we demonstrate in the book through some survey experiments is you can present scenarios to people about, you know, let's say a legislator um, votes against the preferences of his or her constituents for the purpose of, uh, of trying to get some good media coverage or to um, appease party leaders or as part of a log roll and vote trading to, to accomplish some other goal. Um, or in order to um, get more campaign contributions or to get a cousin hired in, 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 a, in uh -oh. a job, you know, no, we can yeah. come up with various scenarios. Some are corrupt, some are politics as usual. Across the board, people view these activities as corrupt. Once you say the word politician, there's a knee-jerk reaction that, that that's, that's corrupt. Um, and then, and, and again, all the more so if the scenario involves a Democratic legislator and the respondent to the survey is Republican or vice versa. There's very much a partisan uh, view that the activities of members of the other party are very uh, suspect and corrupt. So saying that people worry about corruption, um, people aren't always thinking about actual bribery and influence peddling, but rather have, um, you know, kind of suspicious of everything politicians do, not all of which should be illegal uh, or, or sure. know, prohibited. So what was the most surprising finding to you? Um, well, I think the most surprising finding was how right I was. Ah, that's a great finding. <laughs> so, so for years I've been saying, uh, you know, for decades I've been studying money and politics, and I've always kind of asserted that there's this conventional wisdom among the, the public, that there's, there's too much money in politics, that campaign spending um, uh, essentially means that offices are for sale to the highest bidder, that campaign contributions are the functional equivalent of bribes, that um, uh, all of this leads to declining trust in government, and there's this great need for reform to preserve the integrity of democracy. And I've, I've kind of tried to explain to people how the science, the social science literature, really doesn't support these claims. And, and that when we try to study the effects of campaign spending and how much, how determinative is it of the winner of an election or how influential are campaign contributions and lobbying on the content of public policy, 
there's there's really not an ev a lot of evidence that supports this conventional wisdom. And so I, I used to argue that there's these two conventional wisdoms, but I'm like John the Baptist trying to make this argument and I'm easy to dismiss. And so what we finally hit upon um, in this book is let's do a survey of all the experts who study right. money and politics. So it's not just us. No, but Steph Milo saying this is true. That's right. And so the survey, these are people who've done peer-reviewed um, uh, research in, in the field of money and politics. And, you know, you get these, this overwhelming disparity where, you know, 89% of the general public thinks elective offices are essentially for sale to the highest bidder. And about 11% of our money and politics experts have a similar view. And, and you just get this, it really does back up that there's this, the science is not influencing public opinion. How did that become so entrenched? Like, when did this happen that we decided that all politicians are corrupt? Uh, well, is it um, um, uh, Will Rogers or, you know, yeah, I think yeah, the yeah. American pastime is, is <laughs> right. politicians as corrupt from Mark Twain and, and earlier. Um, and, and I do think that, that there's some, some healthy skepticism there. But it's also with the passage of campaign, the federal campaign finance acts in the 70s, you're getting disclosure of contributors, a lot of disclosure of the amounts of money. And these things Plus are often- names, addresses, like they can track right. each Names each and addresses and the ability to kind of look under the light post and say, ah, political action committees from oil and gas industries gave Senator so-and-so $50,000 yeah. over 20 years and Senator so-and-so voted this way. It just creates um, information that's easy to make those kinds of arguments, even though when you poke at them more carefully, you don't find causal relationships of that sort. Instead, what you find are, you know, there are interests that are aligned with either party and they're supporting like-minded yeah. representatives. Yeah, we talk about it in Missouri that we have a lot of, um, I'm sure you know, uh, politicians like to give out tax credits. Like it's a thing that they can pass out to developers and developers give money to the politicians. To me, I've always thought of that as like a water is wet kind of thing. Like, of course, but developers are going to give money to the political campaigns. And of course, there's going to be an expectation of, you know, tit for tat. But I guess what you're saying is that that's not true. Well, it's it's uh, not that there aren't instances of corruption. We can point to convictions of elected sure, sure, sure. officials, but there, you know, this isn't this isn't Bolivia um, or Brazil. You know, the levels of corruption here are are nothing like they are in other in other countries. And and we also have to distinguish what do we mean by corruption. So, um, you know, legally, the Supreme Court has been pretty consistent in saying corruption is. Um, quid pro quo exchanges of, of money or things of value for people favors. So things like bribery and influence peddling. Not. Rod Blagojevich comes to mind, maybe? There you go. He tried. He tried his best. <laughs> so, um, but, but not that a politician is supported by a union because that politician consistently supports yeah. the kinds of policies that a union likes. That's politics. Yeah, that's right. And, and that's, that's not right. corrupt. So that kind of what sometimes people call influence or undue influence. And I have to say, studying this topic for 
at least 30 years. I've never heard anyone define do influence. Do influence, yeah. Just the right uh, amount. What did <laughs> what do you think then was the impact of the the major campaign finance reforms we've had recently, like Citizen United? Like, has it helped or hurt or had no impact? <clears throat> well, you have to Citizens United, you know, has had some effects on American politics. Could you obviously. just give a couple sentences on what on what Citizens United is? Sure. Better you so, um, unfortunately, every legal question gets gets complicated fast. But so so individuals can give contributions directly to candidates. Let's call those contributions, and those contributions are limited by law in most jurisdictions. I'll speak mostly of the federal uh, federal case. Uh, in Missouri, it used to be that anyone could give any amount, but but since that has uh, that's been limited. Uh, corporations and unions cannot give money directly to federal candidates. Now, there's another class of political activity known as independent expenditures. And the Supreme Court has said that independent expenditures don't raise the specter of a quid pro quo exchange because they're done independently. So if I, as an individual, instead of giving money to a politician, which raises concerns about a quid pro quo exchange, instead run my own independent ad that says vote for Joe Smith, he's a nice guy, that, that is not considered uh, corrupting. And so it was um, always the case since 1976 when, when the federal campaign acts were passed that individuals could engage in independent expenditures. Citizens United extended that to corporations and unions and the logic was um, that the government may prohibit corporate and union contributions directly to candidates because of <clears throat> concerns about corruption and the appearance of corruption. But if those entities want to engage in independent advocacy, that kind of breaks that chain of a quid pro quo exchange. You, you can agree or disagree with the logic, but that was the Citizens United. And, and you know, one of the reasons the court takes a what some people might view as a, um, a narrow or constrained view of what corruption is, is, is because you don't want gray areas in the law when you're talking about fundamental liberties. So if, if you have free speech and association, you need to know what's legal or not, and it right. needs to be obvious. And so when you're giving money to a candidate, ah, okay, that's going to be regulated. If you're just talking about politics and advocating, then that's not going to be regulated in the same way. Um, so Citizens United opened that door, and then a few months later was Speech Now, which was an appellate court decision, which essentially uh, allowed the creation of what we call super PACs, which are groups which raise money in unlimited amounts from any source, corporation, union, individual, in order to make independent expenditures. And, and just fair disclosure, I was an expert in, in that case, so. Oh, okay, so now that we've got these two cases and uh, businesses can do their own independent expenditures and groups can get together and have super PACs, the logic would say our uh, electoral system has become more corrupt. That's right. That would be the, the sort of the conventional wisdom number one. Uh, more money, more ruined everything. And, uh, you know, so the first thing to notice, while Citizens United has changed the political landscape, it really isn't the case that corporations or even unions are primarily the ones engaged in independent expenditures. It's mostly ideological groups 
getting support from often wealthy individuals, but also many small contributors as well, maybe some corporations and unions. But corporations have kind of learned the lesson that if, they, uh, if they're too explicit and directly um, getting involved in politics, they may be subject to some backlash or boycotts. Mm -hmm. So it really isn't the case that, that corporate independent expenditures are dominating the super PAC landscape. They're a small fraction. Um, another issue is when you kind of open up this spigot and allow unlimited amounts of money to be spent on independent expenditures, that it's going to swamp everything else. And it turns out, even in this election cycle, it's, it's you know, 15 to 20, max 20 percent really? of political spending is from super PACs. If you ask the general public, like we do in our book, they think it's more like 75 percent. I bet. As they yeah. get such outsized attention in, um, in the press. But the, the one thing that I will say Citizens United did that maybe was an unintended consequence is if we go back in time to McCain-Feingold 2002, the uh, reform, um, it used to be prior to 2002 that anyone, any entity could give any amount to the national parties, what we called soft money. Mm -hmm. And so that made the parties important in supporting their candidates and helping select candidates, etc. 2002, McCain-Feingold, the last reform that was going to fix everything in American politics, um, <laughs> said no, you know, no more corporate or union contributions to the political parties, only individual contributions and in limited amounts. And what that did is it really hamstrung the parties, sure, but it also left a lot of, you know, very motivated, um, ideologically um, um, motivated potential contributors out there with with money to nowhere burn. to give their money to right and citizens <laughs> united opened up things like, oh, again now, now I got so a place. You, what we're seeing is a substitution of what used to be soft money to parties now being given to what i would call quasi party super PACs that are taking the the role of what parties used to do sure. except they're not really under the control of parties and so it's a little bit more chaotic Sure. And uh, and so a lot of political scientists now are looking at this and saying, you know, gee, things were better when the parties were better able to coordinate these activities instead of having sometimes rogue super PACs out there. Um, they had agreed upon platforms parties. and agreed upon yeah. messaging. And what's dark money then? So dark money is a term of art, not a legal term. Um, and so uh, dark money People in some like ways. People like to use it. <laughs> that's right. Well, it's scary. It sounds bad. It's a scary so, term. Scary um, money. Dark money I would define as, um, as spending, which is funded by contributions, which um, either don't have to be disclosed or the sort of chain of custody of the money doesn't have to be disclosed all okay. the way back to an individual. So, um, and dark money comes in with, um, you know, so even independent expenditures, groups running independent expenditures still have to register as committees and disclose their contributors. But their contributors might be a nonprofit group and those groups, as long as they don't spend most of their money on political activities, can make contributions. And so who's the contributor? It's the group. Some folks look at that and say, no, we want to know who are the individuals who funded the nonprofit sure, sure. because this is hiding that information. Uh, and so that's typically what's meant by, by uh, dark money. Um, but, you know, when you hear that uh, Act Blue is funding 
um, a, super, a super PAC or, or, you know, independent expenditure for a candidate, there's no doubt what the motives were sure. behind that. Um, so to me, it sounds like efforts at campaign finance reform are like efforts at changing the tax code. The minute the change happens, the people will find a way to continue doing basically the same activity they were doing before, but just in a different way, right? It's not like it buries the behavior. So campaign finance reform, so that's why, I mean, simplify the tax code to me, but I feel like campaign finance reform is sort of on the same path where we're going to fix this and then, oh, we've realized that caused another problem, so we're going to have to fix that. And then that caused a problem, so we have to fix that. And in addition, candidates now love to say how many or how what percentage of their donations are under $100 or under $5. This is like a badge of honor now to say, oh, I'm getting all the small dollar donations, so I'm not being bought. Is that, is that where it's heading? More reform? So, uh, yeah, a couple of points there. The, the, the one about sort of what's sometimes called the hydraulic theory of uh, money and politics. You know, so you, you turn off one spigot and it finds a route somewhere else. I used to describe it as uh, reformers were playing whack-a-mole with, sure. uh, with interest group money. Um, and, and as long as there's politics and government has the ability to dole out contracts or tax breaks, there's going to be interested money and interested parties involved one way or another. And, and the same with corruption. Um, campaign finance laws are aimed at you know, a, a particular kind of corruption. But when we look at modern corruption scandals, you know, we're not talking about a bag of money delivered to a legislator in order to sneak something into a bill. We're talking about hiring somebody's son to be the director of a corporation and the amounts of money uh, dwarf anything don't, that's don't a compute quite well with, with what they bring to the table. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, you know, campaign finance reform is often viewed as sort of this magic wand that's going to fix everything when, when, you know, it's, it's really aimed at just, it's like taking an aspirin for a broken leg in some ways. It just doesn't have anything to do with the actual problem sometimes that we identify. And that seems like the biggest finding from your book, which is to say, people think this is what's going to fix everything. It hasn't fixed it in the last decades. It's not going to be a fix going forward. And the more interesting point to me is like, maybe we don't need to fix anything. Well, and, and unpacking that a little bit. So, so, you know, one of the themes in our book is when we say fix things, the Supreme Court has said that has to mean if you're going to infringe on fundamental political rights, the only rationale to do so is to prevent corruption or the appearance of corruption. And um, something we don't go into as much in the book because it's not controversial uh, among social scientists or legal scholars, there's no known evidence that actual corruption is at all affected by campaign finance regulation, actual prosecutions and, and convictions for corruption. And so everything, the whole rationale for campaign finance regulations hinges on this public opinion about trust in government and the appearance of corruption. And that's what we delve into in the book. And, and ultimately what we show in the last chapter um, is we look at 30 odd years across the states which have very different regulatory regimes for campaigns for governor and state legislature, some more laissez-faire, some much more regulated, have public funding. And do these variations in campaign finance laws have anything to do with people's trust and confidence in state government? 
How's that? The short correlate? answer. <laughs> the short answer is absolutely no relationship. And so one of the, you know, what the courts have assumed that campaign finance reform is is vital to to improve public confidence in government has absolutely no empirical basis. What about this idea of the government funding uh, political campaigns? So that is, um, uh, you know, public financing of campaigns. It's unpopular for one thing. Sure. And all the more unpopular if you remind people that it's going to be taxpayer funds. Yeah. Um, and even more unpopular if you point out that some candidates might support policies they don't like. But so so public funding tends to really only be most popular, you know, among us, uh, a minority segment of uh, the more activist um, liberals and, and reform supporters. But in terms of the evidence of public funding, um, one of the things that we see um, is that public financing, when it's been tried in the states, actually um, increases the re-election rate of incumbent state legislators. Mm -hmm. And part mm -hmm. of that is it's, it's hard to unseat an incumbent and you need to be able to run a vigorous campaign. And, and so demonizing private contributions and, and expenditures just makes it easier for the incumbent to stay in office. We also see public financing is does not improve trust and confidence in government or any of those kinds of measures as well. So do you think there is a way to improve? Well, you said we don't necessarily need to improve trust in government, right? That's not that doesn't need to be a core values well, to increase trust in government. It would be nice if if elected officials were trustworthy. That, that yeah, might yeah, be the yeah. way to improve trust in government. I used to look at the World Value Survey quite a bit, and they have a lot of questions around confidence and trust, which I think is very interesting. Like, do you trust your local government? Do you trust your national government? Do you trust the police? Do you trust the firefighters? Like, you know, and I, I can imagine that with the increased polarization, we're going to get more people who say they don't tr trust because we're more polarized. Well, yeah, yes and no. So l let me let me take a slightly different um, um, measure, which is approval of of state legislatures. Mm -hmm. And so because I've done a study looking at public approval of state legislatures, it turns out the more the more polarized are the parties in the state legislature, actually public approval goes up. Hmm. And that might seem counterintuitive, but but think about it, if you're a democrat in California and you're most people are democrats, you want the Democrats that represent you to act like Democrats. Right. And so you like it when they're polarized and they're different than Republicans. And similarly, if you're a Republican in Missouri, we're the majority. You, right. you want Republicans to act like Republicans. So it's not the case that polarization reduces public approval uh, or even trust in government. Uh, and, yeah. and that's because a majority of the people don't view it as a bad thing. They view it as, ah, you're doing the kind of things I want. So um, one, another takeaway that maybe I've already mentioned this that I thought was very interesting is that people don't really know much about campaign finance reform. People talk about it, it's kind of buzzy, and they're like, well, the election's a mess. Here's, here's what we need to do now. We need to reform how we elect people. And uh, I think it's just one of those phrases, campaign finance reform, that people throw around without really even knowing what the words mean that they're saying. And 
I assume that that was a finding from your book too, right? Yeah, we've got kind of two whole chapters speak to one people are you know quite ignorant about existing regulations and that's no fault of the general public why should they be informed sure, sure. it's it's a rational ignorance and it's not limited to campaign finance laws you could you could do this with tax law or anything else we don't need to know everything we can look it up if you ever have a need uh, but it is true that that means though when people say ah we should have more regulations they don't know what the baseline is and so it turns out some of what people want is what we already have. Right, right. Uh, is one factor. And then the other is this kind of knee-jerk reaction you mentioned to, um, you know, reform is good, money is bad. We do some survey experiments where you can change the wording of a question a little bit, either to emphasize more the free speech, free association angle, or the special interest campaign contribution angle. So for example, you know, should government have the ability to limit um, the ability of candidates for office to speak to the public uh, versus should government be able to limit the total campaign advertisements of candidates for office? One emphasizes money and one right, emphasizes right. speech. And you get, uh, I mean, this, this actually was a bit of a surprise too, how much of a difference just that change in wording makes when, yeah when the key piece of that is should the government limit right those are the important right. words right and 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 but the framing if you frame something yeah. as money and special interests then people are much more favorable toward regulation if you frame it as infringing sure. on freedom not not using those exact words then they're much less supportive and uh, and so we we describe it as public opinion is not only you know uninformed but it's very malleable and so using public opinion as the basis for, you know, the constitutional rationale to limit fundamental rights is on really shaky ground. Right. Apart from, totally apart from the fact that reforms don't work the way they're supposed to in practice. What would be a, a fix that would reduce political corruption? Uh, well, there's a, a, a number of ways you could go. I think there's some evidence that, um, uh, you know, freedom of information helps and transparency mm -hmm. about regulation and regulatory processes um, um, that, uh, you know, democracy and political competition, for, for one thing, you know, we're not a kleptocracy, right. um, that helps. But also, um, you know, limits on government power. And, you know, so when you see episodes where, you know, say this notion that, well, we've got to have a fiscal stimulus now, and it's really important to just shovel money out the door. doesn't really matter where it lands. We, we got to get it out the door. That is just a recipe for directing funds to favored groups and to cronies. Absolutely. And so limits on that kind of, you know, uh, on, on government spending or that kind of government authority would be, um, you know, useful in preventing corruption as well. So your book comes out at such a timely uh, moment, like in the middle of a big election mess. It, it is. It, it, we got it out right before the election. And, uh, and I believe HR1 that the Democrats are going to propose is going to involve campaign finance reform. Is it? Okay. Yeah. And uh, however, I will say that I'm, uh, you know, at the federal level, when the Democrats have had unified control of government, they don't pass campaign finance reform. It's usually used as a as a you know rhetorical part of the rhetorical battle when you know when it's safe and you know the law is sure. not going to pass 
then you propose something. And, uh, and so it, it may, you know, the Republicans are gonna have a filibuster proof Senate regardless. So you'll see something pass in the House and it will probably be stopped in the, in the Senate. Or if, if elected officials are confident the Supreme Court will knock things down. Republicans play the same games. Remember sure, sure, flag burning amendments and, yeah, and the yeah. like in the, in the early 90s. So, you know, um, uh, but it'll Politics be- Politics is always good theater, right? That's right. Well, I'm sure you're busy with this new book out and uh, the fact that we are in the middle of this mess. So I won't take any more of your time, but it's very, very interesting. I learned a lot and I was, I'm one of those people that did not know a lot about campaign finance reform. So I really appreciate it. It was extremely counterintuitive to me and very interesting with tons of data and facts, which I love. So I appreciate you um, helping me sift through it a little bit. Yeah, it's definitely not beach reading, so it is a scholarly book, but uh, thank you very much. I, I uh, appreciate the opportunity to talk about it. Great. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Show Me Institute podcast. Find more at showmeinstitute.org.